Father God, we thank you that you are indeed a great God. You are the King of kings and you are the Lord of lords. And we pray, Father, that you will soften our hearts now as we hear your word read and preached today. Father, thank you for all that you've done for each one of us through the death and the resurrection of your son, Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. John chapter 6, verses 1 to 21. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was gonna do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed them to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Well, we've got a bit of a um, enactment of the story today with this wind howling. So we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, uh, but friends, as we think about this passage, I wonder what it is. So I've got a question for you. Uh, what, is, what is it that is taking up your thoughts? What is it that's taking up your thoughts? Uh, maybe you've been through times in your life when you found your thoughts taken up with something and it's just hard to shake. As a church family, we've just had one of our church family uh, get married uh, last weekend and... Um, now that's that kind of time in your life where the whole Williams family, I'm sure, had their, all their thoughts taken up with one thing, the upcoming events. Um, sometimes, though, it's something you're anxious about, um, something that's coming up. Uh, sometimes it, uh, our thoughts can get taken up by things that aren't particularly good or bad. They're just, well, they're just nothing, really. You, you, might, you might know about the binge-watching phenomenon. Have you heard about this? Because uh, of the internet streaming services, 
you can settle in for a whole series of TV in one hit. Okay, so there goes your weekend. Uh, <laughs> it's a nice distraction maybe, but it's the sort of thing that can easily consume you. So your thoughts are taken up with who's going to die or get kicked off the island or receive the rose in the next episode or whatever it is. Uh, there are lots of things that take up our thoughts and often they're, things, often they're things that we think, we know that they take up too much of our thoughts, that we think too much about. But according to John's Gospel, there is one thing that we cannot think too much about. We cannot think too much about. Uh, John is taken up with this thing it is the glory of Jesus. The glory of Jesus. And he can't get enough of it. Uh, right from the start, he talks about Jesus. If you have your Bible there, you can flick back to chapter 1 and look down at verse 14 where John writes, We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, and all through this gospel, this is what we're, take, we're confronted with. This is what John presents and is, is, is taken up with himself. This the reality of the amazing power of Jesus. Uh, it can be a bit of a problem sometimes for some of us. Something that doesn't quite hit home. Um, and for many of us, it's because we've seen power misused so badly in so many ways personally in our families in our institutions in our governments uh, and we live with the kind of assumption and you know the phrase right that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely um, the kind of power we see in Jesus this kind of absolute power and in in that kind of climate it can be difficult, can't it? To really, it can be difficult for us to trust anyone, which can make the Christian life difficult because trust is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Faith means trust, really. It's just another way of saying the same thing, entrusting yourself to Jesus as your Saviour and King and in a time when we find it hard to trust anyone, how are we going to continue to trust Jesus? What John shows us is the reality, not... It shows us, he shows us what we need, actually, to do that. Uh, he shows us the reality not only of Jesus' incredible, absolute power, but also of his stunning, bright goodness. And those two things are what we have before us in this passage today. It's really, uh, today, if you think about today, really is a, a chance to see this reality afresh for yourself, to soak in it, to kind of just kick back around in it. Uh, maybe for you, even for the first time, to have your heart just softened and warmed by Jesus. That's what John wants, that's John's purpose. If you were here a few weeks ago and we rebooted this series through John's Gospel, 
That's what John wants. He wants his readers to see Jesus' glory, um, to see Jesus' glory like he did, to trust his goodness like he did. He wants his readers to be converted to Jesus, to believe that Jesus is God's promised King, God's eternal Son, and by believing in him to have life, eternal life. So, and as we've seen on the way through, one of the main ways that John does this is through using these signs, these particular works that Jesus does that have this real significance to them. They're like signposts pointing to who Jesus is. We've seen a number of them already, and we're up to the next one today. It's probably, I reckon, the most Australian of them all. A picnic beside the lake followed by water sports. Couldn't get any better, right? Uh, but, be, but before we get to this passage, uh, we're going to dive into it in a second. I just want to uh, just very briefly touch on one thing that um, can be a bit of a barrier for some of us uh, as we approach these kind of uh, accounts in the Bible. We, uh, we, tend, uh, we just kind of read through the lens of being 21st century Australians, Westerners. Uh, a few number of weeks ago we talked about naturalism as a kind of really defining feature of our society. We read through that kind of lens that says this world is all that there is and there can't be anything else. Uh, if that's you, it's just worth being aware that it is actually a lens, a kind of filter through which you see the world. And it has a whole set of assumptions behind it that need to be questioned. Uh, who's to say that that's the case, that the kinds of things we're going to read today can't happen? Where does your kind of filter come from? Ultimately, the question is, does a personal and transcendent created God, the God of the Bible, does that God exists, and if he does, then miracles are no problem. Um, if, this is, uh, if this is a kind of issue for you, you know people who, which, who are struggling with this, I think the place to start uh, isn't just one or two isolated stories, but it's actually the greatest miracle of them all, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Once you accept that, all the other dominoes fall. Um, and the others... And, and, you, and once you accept that, you get a new filter to look through, a new lens that makes sense of all the rest. So I'm going to assume that. I'm going to assume the resurrection is true, the God of the Bible is true, uh, the God and Father of Jesus is real, and that for him, miracles are no problem. Okay, but as we, let's, uh, if you have your Bible open there, John chapter 6, that'll just be helpful. Uh, uh, and as you get into it, you notice it, how it is, it's written as history. It's not re- written to, in the style of a fable or a myth or anything. It's written as history. And you notice all the details about where and when and who was there. Um, I've heard of someone who was converted to Jesus uh, because he was sitting through a long church service and while the preacher was going on, he flicked through his Bible uh, to the end of his Bible. And what's often at the end of your Bible? Uh, is a whole lot of maps. Um, and I heard of this guy, he was, he, he was sitting there and he was brought along by someone, I think, and he had, as he looked at these maps, he had this sudden realisation. It was like these light bulbs went off in, in his head. And he suddenly realised, this really happened. It really happened. It's not just kind of some abstract things in the sky. This is concrete 
historical reality and it changed everything for him. Uh, so I've got a bit of a map up here. Uh, Jesus, last week, he was down in Jerusalem. Well, not last week, but when we were, the last passage we saw. Uh, this week he's travelled all the way up to this Sea of Galilee there. And we're told in verse 1 that um, he's crossed over to the sort of eastern side, the other side of the sea. That's where we pick up the story. Uh, in verse 2, it should be up on the screen. He's crossed over there and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover was near. Um, so the scene gets set here. Jesus heads north to this uh, Sea of Galilee um, we're told the Passover festival was near. That's going to become really important in the next few weeks. Um, so come back then, um, this idea of the, the, the Passover as the background to what's going on. It's a very, really important Jewish festival. And this happens through John's Gospel. Jesus does really significant things at these important moments um, in the Jewish calendar. But uh, the great pre- crowd that follows Jesus, he brings a great problem. See that in verse 5? When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? So you've got this crowd. They just want to be near Jesus. They just want to be near Jesus. They followed him this long distance. Uh, If you think about the setting they're in, they're in a kind of subsistence um, agricultural society, economy, and so you can't just chuck a few packets of chips in your bag uh, to keep you going, right? So uh, it's a big problem. Jesus sees this problem. We find out later uh, is about five thousand men, um, which, if you include women and children, means you know maybe between fifteen and twenty thousand people have followed Jesus over to this other side of the lake. It's a huge crowd. Um, but do you notice when Jesus raises this issue, uh, says, where are we going to buy bread for all these people? He doesn't say it in a kind of anxious way. He doesn't say it because he's nervous. In fact, we're told in verse 6, he only asks this of Philip to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Uh, but Philip doesn't um, stand up too well to the test. He just sees the bigness of this problem that's in front of them. Philip answered in verse 7, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. One bite. What's that? $35,000 of food for all this crowd to have one bite. Half a year's wages. Then another disciple, Andrew, pipes up in verse 9. Um, I think it's hard to know what's going on here. Maybe, maybe he was having a bit of a joke. This question of Jesus just seems so ridiculous, so ludicrous. And uh, Andrew sees a, the little kid with his lunchbox over there, so he kind of calls him over and says to Jesus, well, look, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. They're not even a big baguette and, you know, a big salmon or something. You know, five small barley loaves and a couple of tins of tuna. You know, like, uh, how far is that going to go among 20,000 
people. Um, so you've got the disciples, I, I imagine at this point, just totally bewildered. What is going on? Why is Jesus asking this? But Jesus doesn't get put off. Um, and maybe, maybe I don't, you know, we're not told this, but it's interesting to think maybe Jesus has a bit of a gleam in his eye and half a smile on his mouth when he says in verse 10, have the people sit down. And uh, so you get, uh, you remember the setting there, Jesus and his disciples are on the side of this mountain and there's this big uh, plain of grass out in front of them. So everyone sits down. And then in verse 11, Jesus takes the loaves. He gives thanks to his Father in heaven. And he distributes the bread and the fish to everyone who's seated. It's hard to imagine how, uh, we're not told how, but in some incredible way, Jesus was able to take this tiny lunchbox, a couple of crackers and fish, and make it enough for 20,000 people. Um, it's, and, but did you notice how it goes on? Not just enough for them. Remember what Philip said? You had half a year's wages and you wouldn't have enough for each one to have even one bite. But notice what happens. Jesus hands out the bread... Presumably with the disciples' help, he goes out and hands it, hands it all out. And he gives it to those who were seated, but he gave it to them as much as they wanted, not just one little mouthful, as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. And when the feast was over in verse 13, they gather up 12 baskets full of leftovers. Jesus doesn't just exceed the wildest expectations of his disciples. He doesn't just meet them, he exceeds them. <laughs> he doesn't just give enough. He gives an overabundance. And it's no wonder, isn't it, as you read on, that people start to make these huge claims about Jesus, about who he is. Verse 14, the people see the sign Jesus performed. They begin to say, Surely this is the prophet who is come into the world. They're talking about a promised figure from the Old Testament, from their scriptures. If you're interested, you can look up Deuteronomy 18, where it talks about this promised figure. Um, we've already seen how big Moses was for these guys. He was their great prophet. And, but Moses himself, well, God promised to Moses that there would be another prophet come, like Moses, uh, he says, I will raise up for you a prophet. Um, uh, I will put my words in his mouth. This is God speaking to Moses. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command. So the people who join the dots, they say, we're, we're waiting for this guy. Um, Moses fed, uh, brought us through uh, the Exodus and we were fed by manna from God. Here we have Jesus, the one who was promised, who feeds us. Um, they, they join the dots, Jesus is this prophet, this coming one, but what the people didn't see was that he wasn't just that prophet, he was so much more. He didn't just pass on God's words, he was himself the word made flesh, God's full, final communication to his world. And so the people aren't, they're not wrong, but they're just a little misguided in what they think. And you get that when 
uh, when what Jesus does next. See, they, they think that this prophet, this great one, is going to lead them into a new political era, going to become their king and liberate them. But Jesus knows his kingdom isn't what they're thinking. It's so much bigger than that. He's not just here to liberate one people from its oppression under one empire. He is here to liberate his people from every nation, from their greatest oppression to sin and death. So as you keep reading, he withdraws himself up the mountain, away from the crowds. Which leaves his disciples wondering what to do, right? Uh, he kind of just hikes off up the mountain. He leaves his disciples. What, running, uh, evening approaches. Jesus doesn't get back yet. They need to get to Capernaum. So they jump in the boat and set off. Uh, and we read the story earlier. Had the, the nice kind of effect of the wind as we were reading it. Uh, they get about halfway across where they're going. If you remember that um, image that was up before the picture, they're probably not going right through the middle of the lake, probably cutting across one corner. But even so, it's a long trip. Uh, it's a long trip for them to make. They, go, they get about halfway over. Uh, and the winds start whipping up the ocean. I was hoping at this point in the sermon that the wind would actually start whipping up the building, but it's died down. What a, what a letdown. No, but you can picture it, right? The winds start whipping up the ocean uh, and this great storm comes on. They've gone from this... And you, can you picture the... Imagine the disciples, right? They've gone from this high point, being with Jesus, seeing him perform this incredible miracle and now Jesus is nowhere in sight. They're in the middle of a storm. It's dark. Uh, and to make matters worse, they start seeing ghosts. Verse 19, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they see Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. We know it's Jesus. I think we meant to, uh, to pick up that they didn't. And you would be, I reckon, as you would be and as I would be, they get a little bit of a fright at this sight. But then do you see what Jesus says as he pulls up to the boat? He gives these simple words that are just so full of his glory and his comfort. Verse 20, Jesus rides on the storm. He walks up to the boat and he says, It is I. Don't be afraid. Uh, then we're told they were willing to take him into the boat and in this other kind of the last miracle in this scene, suddenly, immediately, they get to the other shore. They're totally out of the storm. They get to the shore where they were heading. Two remarkable miracles, right? Now, Jesus shows his glory. That's what these miracles are there for. They're primarily signposts to point us to who Jesus is. They show his glory and they show his goodness, his willingness to provide, his willingness to come to his people and save them. There's more going on here. Uh, we'll see over the next few weeks. Uh, we need to keep reading, right, the next part of this chapter. We'll see he takes, Jesus kind of particularly focuses on this feeding of the 5,000 uh, and he uses it to show how it, 
points to himself and he fills it out in this really um, amazing way. He uses it as a sign to point to the deeper hunger that we have and the way in which he alone can satisfy that. Um, So come back over the next few weeks, please, if you're able. It's John's longest chapter, this one. Um, But it's it's a chapter that's so full of depth and riches that we're going to take a few weeks to get through it. But even before we get that uh, to there, there's so much that the miracles in themselves help us with. Uh, they tell us, Jesus shows us, as we've said, that he shows us that he is both willing and able. He is both willing and able to provide for and to save his people. Even when they get it wrong, even when they don't properly recognise, even when they don't trust him like they should. Jesus is the great provider and the great saviour. He had absolute power, but unlike anyone else in the history of the world, absolute power did not corrupt him because he is God the Son. And friends, that means something remarkable, actually. It means that we can trust him we can trust him Um, this is a really big thing for all of us but for some of us particularly who maybe have felt that wrong use of power in our own lives and have learned not to trust those who have power we can trust jesus so friends what is it that takes up your thoughts Um, Often it's those things that we are afraid of, right? Uh, They can just be all-consuming. And I think that's one of the reasons we go for our distractions. Uh, Whatever it is that takes our mind off our fears, those things that seem to consume us. It's going to be different for each one of us. But what is it for you? What is it that takes up your thoughts? Well, John gives us a much better way of responding to that than just distracting ourselves or trying to numb it. John gives us a reality that is far stronger and better to put into our minds. It is very simple, but it's life-changing. It's life-giving. What John gives us here is... For you to hear the voice of the Son of God say to you, It is I. Don't be afraid. It is I. Don't be afraid. John is relentlessly heading towards the climax of his gospel, and when we get there, we're going to see these all these stories in their biggest picture. Um, We see that Jesus is not just the provider for our physical food. Uh, He's much more than that, and that's next week, so come back then. But we see that Jesus isn't just the... He's not actually just with us in the storm, here and now. Uh, There is a far, far greater storm of God's judgment on sin. There's more than that. The wonder of the gospel is that Jesus went through that greatest storm ahead of you, for you, 
to bring you safely to the other side. There's a great old hymn that brings some of these things together. It, it kind of uses old words. It uses the word repine, which I had to Google, um, which just means apparently to be discontented or worried. So that you'll know what it means when it comes up. Uh, but I'm going to finish by reading this old hymn out. It's called Begone Unbelief. It was written by John Newton. If you know anything about John Newton, uh, he's the writer of Amazing Grace, the famous hymn. A few hundred years ago, uh, before being kind of confronted by Jesus and converted to the gospel, he was a slave trader. He um, was on a slave ship, a captain of a, a ship. He repented of that and joined, he actually joined the movement to end slavery. Um, but John Newton would have known a thing or two about storms. Uh, and about the terror and the fear that they can bring. But he also knew the comfort of Jesus who says, It is I, do not be afraid. Now this is what he wrote. Just um, soak this in, friends, as we finish up. He writes uh, in this hymn, Be gone, unbelief. My Saviour is near and for my relief will surely appear. By prayer let me wrestle, and he will perform. With Christ in the vessel, I smile at the storm. Though dark be my way, since he is my guide, tis mine to obey, tis his to provide. Though cisterns be broken and creatures all fail, the word he has spoken shall surely prevail. How bitter the cup no heart can conceive, which he drunk quite up, that sinners might live. His way was much rougher and darker than mine. Did Jesus thus suffer, and shall I repine? Since all that I meet shall work for my good, the bitter is sweet, the medicine is food. Though painful at present, twill cease before long, and then, oh, how pleasant, the conqueror's song. Let me pray. Begone, unbelief. My Saviour is near, and for my relief will surely appear. By prayer let me wrestle, and he will perform with Christ in the vessel. I smile at the storm. Gracious Father, give us a renewed vision of the glory of Jesus, we pray. Give us a, new, a deepened confidence in the goodness of our Lord. Father, may we learn to trust him more in every part of our lives. Help us to Listen to him and follow him. Lord, we pray that today we might hear that voice ourselves and to know that with Jesus with us, we do not need to fear. So thank you for this wonderful truth. Thank you for Jesus telling us that it is I, do not be afraid. Lord, we pray that these things will sink deeply into us and transform us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.